Yeah, you have to like still make sure you're interacting with people in your real life who care about you. You get a lot of really nice people online too, but you have to make sure that you can leave the online space and go somewhere nice. It's like they say, go touch some grass. Exactly, yeah. Is anyone enjoying this? You have a YouTube channel called Political Psych with Abby. Can you tell our listeners about your channel? So basically, I actually just finished a master's degree in political psychology. I handed them in my last assignment a few days ago. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thanks. Before I even started doing the degree, when I was still finishing my undergrad, I was you know, already getting interested in this political psychology stuff, and I knew I was going to be starting a master's in it. And I've always been fairly politically active. And while researching a lot of stuff with political psychology and social psychology in general, I'm like, okay, this stuff is really interesting and really useful and has the potential to be really powerful. But most people don't know about it, right? Primarily, it's academics and occasionally certain people who work for like really high profile campaigns who know about it. And I'm like, well, what if people who are, you know, activists and want to get into that sort of thing, could know about it and use those techniques for smaller scale things or projects that might not have access to, you know, fancy consultants and all that kind of thing. So that's sort of why I created the channel and also super useful for just like staying motivated while doing a master's during a pandemic. It ended up being all online, which is not what it was supposed to be. So super useful for staying motivated because, you know, I learned something cool and I get to tell people about it and I get to be like, well, okay, even if I don't end up using this for work, I can use it for a video and then maybe someone else can use it to make the world better, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'd like to be a bigger channel eventually. Uh, <laughs> uh, what I was going to say is the interesting thing is, so I don't really have much of like a video editing background. Um, but I've always been pretty good at giving presentations. So my videos are just made like in Keynote with a little bit extra from Canva. And then I just record them like chronologically and just redo slides that I have to redo as I go along. Uh, so it's a lot of effort, but it's not actually a lot of like video editing technique there. <laughs> I, I really enjoyed your videos. They're really well made. Someone commented on one of them that, you know, that your video quality is very high for such a small channel, which I definitely agree with. Yeah, I've always liked like graphic design stuff. So I enjoy doing that a lot. How did you get into, okay, so actually, let me phrase that a different way. So your degree ended up being online. And of course, you had to come up with another way to engage with the material. Why videos? Well, I've been watching a lot of YouTube videos for a long time, especially politics and philosophy videos, the whole left tube thing, you know? And so I was sort of inspired by some of that. And I was like, well, I mean, there's all these people who are doing really cool stuff with philosophy and even a bit with like sociology, but I don't see a lot of people applying it to like psychology. And if you look for psychology content on the internet, a lot of it is like mental health and clinical psychology stuff. And that stuff is super important. Don't get me wrong. But psychology is so much bigger than that as a discipline. And I wanted to talk about that. Who are some of your favorite uh, left tube creators? I've gotten into We're in Hell pretty recently. I really like his stuff. Uh, plus, you know, the obvious ContraPoints, Philosophy Tube, H Bomber Guy, Lindsay Ellis, all that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> if I kept going, it would be a long time. I've definitely 
fallen down rabbit holes where it's like, oh my god, I've been watching this stuff for six hours. I need to do something else. Uh, especially because like I do a lot of needlepoint and graphic art and that kind of stuff. And I like to have videos on in the background. So sometimes I'll be like, wait a minute, I've done an entire canvas and watched six hours of YouTube video, but I YouTube videos, but I've gotten no work done today. <laughs> I mean, it happens to the best of us. Uh, what is what is what uh, you said? We're in hell. What is that? It's a uh, YouTube channel. I only found it like a few months ago. I think the guy has like a sociology background, and he's Canadian. He's done some really good videos. Uh, the one that actually got me into his channel and still one of my favorites is about cooking shows, and then he ties it into some like political stuff. But a lot of it is just about cooking shows. I'm a big foodie and I love to cook. So that I, I sort of clicked on it because of that. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this guy has some really interesting political insights too. Nice. So would you describe yourself as a left tube creator? I guess I kind of would. I think that a lot of my content isn't necessarily so aimed at just people who are left wing quite as much. Usually people that are left of center in the American context, which is where I'm originally from, although I have lived in the UK for the past five years. I just moved back to the US. Good time. Oh, well. Actually, I guess it's kind of good timing on both. I mean, I left the US in 2016, so... <laughs> Very good timing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously, I've been back and forth. Uh, but what was I going to say? Um, so, you know, a lot of my content, probably, you know, certain videos, people aren't going to necessarily notice my politics beyond, like, left of center in the US, if you get what I'm saying. Like... I'm not really trying to necessarily sell people on full, you know, leftist ideologies. I'm more like, okay, you know, this is a particular thing that's a problem. Let's talk about that specific thing. I'm, I'm not necessarily, and this is, I think, one of the reasons why I was drawn to more psychology and less philosophy or, um, you know, political science. I'm not necessarily a person who thinks in, like, complete ideologies. So I tend to gravitate to more talking about specific things and depending on what I talk about in that video I end up coming off more or less left-wing like I have a video about the causes of political attitudes and kind of from that one you could probably think I'm just like left of center but then I have one about the psychology of wealth and generosity you're probably going to get the vibes that I'm a bit more left-wing from that one <laughs> Yeah, I really enjoyed that one. It really reminded me, uh, excuse me, really reminded me of Anand Girahardis's work. You might enjoy his stuff. He goes on a lot of, uh, he goes on a lot of stuff and he just talks about how um, when billionaires do philanthropy, they are buying PR and we need to stop indulging them. Did he go on John Oliver? I think so. Yes, I think I remember him now. Yes, I think I remember exactly who you're talking about. And yeah, I think that that video is sort of in that vein. Yeah, I really I really think so too. I, I really enjoyed it. Which one of your uh, videos that you made is your favorite? It's hard to say, but I think one that I'm really, really proud of and that I wish was getting you know more attention compared to my other videos is my one about fixing climate change using psychology. Oh, that one was so good. Yeah, I mean, technique-wise, I think it's you know upper tier for me in terms of how well it's made, but I also just think it's not that any of the topics I talk about are unimportant, but that it is, you know, kind of the most important issue of our time. So I think, especially in terms of like empowering activists, that that is some of the most important work I've ever done. If people watch one of my videos, that would be the one I would want them to watch. I will definitely link that in the show notes. 
Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. In general, who do you like to watch? You know, left tube or no? On YouTube. Honestly, I watch a lot of, I watch Binging with Babish a lot. I watch cooking content. Um, mm-hmm. And I watch like fashion content and history content. I'm really into decorative art. If you bring me to the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, you have to pry me out with a crowbar. I'm that kind of person. So, uh, <laughs> I, you know, generally, if I'm not watching political content, I'm watching something about something really beautiful or enjoyable, be it, you know, fashion or jewelry or food or that kind of thing. Ah, aesthetic stuff. Oh, absolutely. I I sort of think of myself as a cozy hedonist. You know, I'm not going out and partying all the time, but I, I like to make and have nice things. <laughs> I totally get that. Uh, I did want to ask you a little bit about moving to England. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I don't give out a ton of detail, but I was actually in Scotland for my undergrad and then I was in England for my master's. Culture shock. Did you experience that when you moved to Scotland? A little bit, although I think a lot of it was right that like I was 18 and I was living away from home for the first time. So I think a lot of people experience that when they go to college. It's just that, you know, there was a five hour time difference and I was, you know, a foreigner, that sort of thing. Um, It's interesting. I sort of think that it's almost nice being in a foreign country, especially when we're, you know, you already speak the language. so There's not that much of a barrier because you can be weird because you're foreign instead of being weird because you're just weird. Um, Oh, that's great. Yeah, no. So that can be really nice. Um, Yeah. And I absolutely loved living there. Like I grew up in the suburbs in the U S and it was so nice living in like a very compact town where I could walk everywhere. Um, Mm. So that was really nice. And I mean, the politics are really different. So like, the idea that, I mean, so I come from a pretty liberal town in, in the U.S., but, like, until Trump got elected, most people were, you know, very, they weren't radical at all. You get what I'm saying? Like, they were very, very mainstream, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, the culture shock there politically was, like, people who are, that it wasn't uncommon for people to just, you know, refer to themselves as a socialist or something, you know? Oh my god! Because yeah. that's a lot more. That's sort of more common in the UK, right? Because um, you know their political spectrum is, is their Overton window is different than ours, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, seeing what was possible, right? Like, obviously, there are a lot of flaws in British politics and British society, and I'm not going to say that they're like better than us. And the whole like British people are classier than Americans is complete nonsense. Um, <laughs> yeah, Agreed. but like. <laughs> Um, you know, using universal health care there. I'm like, my God, they're not some crazy futuristic utopia, but you can just go to the doctor. And I've always had pretty good health insurance here. I've never had to go without medical care. But just being able to go and not fill out forms and know that, you know, if I didn't have my documents on me or if I didn't have some, you know, if I didn't have money or whatever, I would still be able to get care. I was like, wait a minute, this isn't impossible. We should have this. You know what really blew my mind? (laughs) So I went to Guatemala and uh, I got dysentery, as one does in in countries with, uh, you know, where the water infrastructure is struggling that much. So I go to the closest hospital in Guatemala, which is a public hospital. Uh, We're in a really rural area. Um, The infrastructure in general is is just terrible. I wait for a while. Granted, like this is a very, this is a very underprivileged country. Like the um, conditions of the hospital are not great. They're actually pretty bad, but I walk out 
And I, you know, go to the receptionist and I say, you know, how much does it cost? She says, nothing. She says, it costs nothing. I'm like, it, wait, so I'm in Guatemala, like a, a really impoverished country in a really impoverished region of the world for, you know, various political reasons we don't need to get into, but has a lot to do with the CIA. And like, they're not charging me for healthcare. Why am I paying for it in the US? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's nuts. Like, I mean... I had to pay for healthcare as part of my um, visa to the UK. And uh, let me tell you about the visa process. It makes you very anti-nationalist. But I don't know if you've ever applied for a visa before, but it's a whole thing. You pay a fee as part of the visa to be on the NHS. Um, And that fee is actually, I think, something that they haven't already always had. I'm not a complete expert on it. And there are people who think that they shouldn't even have that fee. And that fee... The, the fee I paid for four years was equivalent to a few months of being on my mother's health plan in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, it honestly is insane. Um, I, I don't know. Like, I just, I just like, even in an area of the world where the hospitals clearly badly need money, they don't think it's fair to charge people for basic medical care. I'm going to go on a tear. <laughs> okay, it's a reasonable thing to be mad about. <laughs> I was talking to my boyfriend and... He turned to me one day and he's like, Abby, if we ever have kids, we should move back to England to do it. I live in a very high cost of living area in the U.S. And of course, I don't have to. But, you know, I could move to a cheaper area of the U.S. But no matter where you go, you know, health care can bankrupt you. Child care is, you know, absurdly expensive. What advice would you give to someone who wants to make videos like you, but isn't sure where to start? Jump into it. You can figure it out as you go to some extent. Um, do write a script that that probably is helpful, at least if you're making the same style of videos that I'm making uh, and do your research, obviously. Um, and in terms of like promoting it and that sort of thing, one thing I've noticed is So the two methods of promotion that I use are Instagram and Reddit. And it took me a long time to decide to get Reddit for the YouTube account because I just don't usually use Reddit. I didn't grow up using Reddit. I'm not a big social media person. Uh, Before the pandemic, I was a big interacting with people in in real life person. and I'd like to be again. Uh, Mm -hmm. What I was going to say is Reddit is so much better for engagement than Instagram is. And not just like the the bread tube subreddits and all that. Just like anything that is at all relevant to your video. Like posted on that subreddit. Like if you reference a TV show in your video, even if it's just like a still joke for a second... Put that still up on the subreddit and comment the link to your video down below. The best engagement like I got out of a single post was posting on Reddit about like a joke, an, a reference I made to Archer in my um, wealth and generosity video. Um, and that got me so much engagement for that video. So Reddit isn't always friendly. I have had people be incredibly awful to me on Reddit, uh, but it is so good for engagement. Um Like my channel, I mean, I'm still pretty small, but my channel has been growing much faster since I started using Reddit a lot. You get some engagement off of Instagram, but at this point, 
that's practically just like a diary of my channel that some of my uh, some of my you know subscribers also look at. Uh, but that was good when I was like uh, still doing my masters because I could post um, like summaries of all my readings there. And people seem to like that. And plus, that was like another way to communicate what I was passionate about, even if they don't always click on the videos, because the click through rate on Instagram is not good. Um, it's much better on Reddit. Yeah, Reddit's got a lot of short form content, but there's still a lot of people on there who are interested in long form content and will actually watch at least a good portion of your videos. Yeah, no, yeah, much better watch times off Reddit too. I think because people are probably looking through Reddit when they have more time than when they are looking through Instagram as well. Mm -hmm. um, I will definitely say though that people have been way meaner to me on Reddit than on Instagram. Oh, that's a bummer. What did what did people say? Uh, can I swear on this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, someone called me a cunt. Oh, geez. Yeah, that that's probably one of the worst ones. And they did it in a private message. So it's just like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely the worst for me has been like, so my most popular and most recent video to date is talking about like the political compass, the way that it is and isn't related to the actual social science. And I end up being pretty negative about politicalcompass.org and political, the way political compass memes work. And that has definitely that video, interestingly, because, you know, it's the least politically consequential of my videos, right? Because it's primarily about internet culture and like political theory rather than very practical things, right? So it's not, you know, my most, this is this political issue and what we should do about it type video. But the political compass memes community is not super nice all the time. Like some people have been fine to me and nice, but like people are weird. Um, and they're weird if you're a woman also. That's, that's definitely a thing. Oh yeah. I think they were probably doing it as a joke, but like I made some post and someone just commented woman under it. And I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> yeah it's so weird um but it's it's whatever uh because i think that also you know advice for people making a youtube channel like if you're making it and you're gonna get like some hate comments for it which honestly even if you're doing something pretty innocuous you probably will you gotta make sure that like you have a good support system in your life of like people who will listen to that to you gripe about it and complain about it because you got to talk about it. If you hold it all in, it's like not healthy. Yeah, I um, I don't know if she mentioned this. Our producer has a channel about like biotechnology. <laughs> and, cool. um, you know, like sh she's also a woman. So, you know, people will make like their shitty comments. And she'll just come to me and be like, ah, like some guy who doesn't know what the fuck he's talking about made another comment about how I'm wrong. And he's wrong, actually. So Oh, yeah, I get that all the time. And the thing is, I grew up around like a ton of really, really smart people. And so I never assume that I'm the smartest person in the room, right? So I'm always like, wait a minute, what if they're right? And I need to take down this video. And then I check my notes and I'm like, no, no, they're wrong. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's good to be able to, uh, you know, defend your viewpoint and to really make sure that you've got a solid case. So maybe that's the advantage of being a woman. <laughs> I don't know. Def yeah, I mean, I definitely, there's this like whole thing where people are always like, 
oh, you know, women just need to be more like real confident and assertive and whatever. And I'm like, to some extent, that's true. But to some extent, men need to like, be willing to doubt themselves. You know, I read this really interesting article. I can't remember where it was, but a while ago about basically how like, bluster and overconfidence is really rewarded in the workplace and that rewards men but it also leads to like worse outcomes overall because it just rewards people who have no idea what they're talking about but act like they do yeah no that's for sure abby um are there any questions that you were hoping i would ask that i haven't oh i was gonna talk a little bit about what my next video is gonna be oh yeah yeah, to. so my next video is going to be about genopolitics. Uh, so that's the like genetic um, factors that underlie people's political actions, attitudes, behaviors, all that kind of thing. So I talked a little bit in one of my previous videos about the like causes of political attitudes, but a lot of those underlying causes are themselves caused by genetic factors, and I didn't really get a chance to cover that in that video, so I want to expand on that. Um, and talk more about the genetics, uh, which is going to be really interesting. I think it's a bit more, you know, hard science heavy than some of my previous videos. But fortunately, a lot of it is just like, okay, this is what a twin study is. And I feel like I can probably get that right. Um, yeah. And of course, I mean, I did my undergrad in psychology. So I had to do a lot of, you know, neurosciencey stuff for that. Um, although I was always better at the social psychology end of things. Some of our listeners might not really understand the difference between psychology and social psychology. Uh, would you mind explaining it? Yeah, sure. Uh, so social psychology is a branch of psychology. So it's like a type of psychology. There's a lot of different types of psychology. Uh, so social psychology is the branch that deals with specifically the interactions between individuals and groups and those can be groups as small as you know two or three people or as big as a whole country if you're dealing with how a person relates to the social world around them that's social psychology so political psychology primarily falls under that umbrella nice okay that is very interesting i also wasn't 100 percent clear on that to be honest so <laughs> by some of our listeners i meant some of our listeners but also me a little bit Oh, it's okay. That's okay. <laughs> uh, Abby, where can our listeners follow you? So the YouTube channel is the main thing, and that's political psychology, uh, political psych with Abby. Um, just type that into YouTube. You'll probably get me. And then my Instagram is at political psych with Abby. So my Reddit is political-psych-abby. Oh yeah, if you do subscribe to my channel, please ring the bell. YouTube doesn't always tell you when I have new content. Mm -hmm. It's whatever. It's like, I'd like to make money off of it someday, but that's not really my goal. I mostly just want people to see it, right? Especially because a lot of political psychology stuff, if it's only in the hands of the powerful, that's actually kind of dangerous. It can be, you know, it can be used to manipulate people, right? I went to this careers event in Washington, D.C., right, from my university. But then there was this guy from, I think, the Department of Defense. And he just looks me dead in the eyes and says, are you interested in psychological warfare? Mm. <laughs> yeah, and I said, interested, yes. Willing to do, I don't think so. <laughs> oh, in terms of, like, misuses of... um 
of political psychology stuff, I would really highly recommend uh, Jill Lepore's book, If Then, which is about the Simulmatics Corporation. So it's this really interesting stuff about like either the late 50s or the early 60s about like simulating human behavior hmm. uh, using computers. And a lot of that is pretty relevant to the early history of uh, political psychology, trying to, you know, predict human behavior and be more scientific about it. Although they were really bad about it um, at, in that era. You know, most people who are serious about it will be like, okay, you know, this works under these conditions and these are the limitations of the research and whatever, you know, if anyone ever tells you that their social psychology research applies in every single instance and they haven't tested every single instance, that's a little shady. You know, I mean, you can say this will probably apply fairly universally, but yeah. And I mean, there's still an issue with, in psychology in general, including in social psychology, you know, the fact that um, most of the data is gathered from what's called weird settings. So that's white, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. So that's basically, you know, places, and even within, you know, societies that are considered like that people who have more privilege are more likely to be the subject of a lot of psychology research because a lot of it is just conducted on psychology students, right? Um, so that can be a real issue in political psychology if you're trying to apply concepts to people who might not have as much education or information or people in other settings around the world. So that's a limitation. But earlier on, oh my God, like in this If Then book, talking about the Simulmatics Corporation, they were really, really not doing a good job of including diverse populations. I mean, they were trying to simulate election data for African-American people in the South using a sample of like 30 African-American people in Harlem. Oh, jeez. I think. And that, yeah, so that's like, that's not how that works. Um, that sort of thing doesn't happen as much anymore. Uh, I want to clarify that. Um, but it, it is, yeah, the history of it is really interesting. Interesting. 